You are listening to Fantasy Film Ball with Matt and Dylan, and on this show, we turn movies into sports and look at all the Oscar prospects and their fantasy value. I believe that this is going to win Best Picture, and here's why. I mean, Denis Villeneuve got all the nominations he needed for Dune and still missed out on the Best Director slot. Don't let me get my hopes up. The Academy has disappointed me too many times. Thank you to the Academy. Thank you to all of you in this room. I can't remember the last time I walked out of the movie theater on such a high. No matter how certain it seems, anything can happen on nominations morning. Never count the Golden Globes for just doing something off the walls and bonkers. It's the kind of movie that reminds me of why I fell in love with movies. And the Oscar goes to... Welcome to episode 48 of Fantasy Fumball. My name is Dill. And my name is Matt, and this is a show where we turn movies into sports and sports into something we don't talk about here. And this week, we are going to be going over Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. We're going to be going over Polite Society. We're going to be drafting some of the best Volume 3s in series of all time. And we are going to be dropping some fresh, fresh predictions for best song, best score, best costume design, production design, and hair and makeup. This is a busy week. Of course, we're going to be talking about some trailers. So uh, before we get started, though, Dylan, how are you doing this week? I am doing good. I'm really excited to dive into a lot of what we have to talk about today. Got some strong opinions about some of these movies that we have to talk about. I feel pretty good with this upcoming draft because, a little spoiler, last week's draft didn't really go to plan. And I'm excited to talk about some brand new trailers because we are entering trailer season where, like, each week we should be getting at least, like, you know, one. Every single week there will be new trailers coming out. And it's uh, this is one of my favorite times of year because we get to see what people are doing. Like, this morning, we won't talk for a full segment on this. Like, this isn't worth talking about for 10 minutes because it's a 30-second trailer, but we got a 30-second trailer for Yorgos Lanthimos' Poor Things, which, I don't know about you, I think it looks absolutely stunning. It looks perfect for what I kind of would have never even imagined from the book. Like, this is how you'd have to do the book, because so much of the book deals with uh, memory and storytelling and sort of a very distinct, very clouded worldview in the book we're reading an account from someone uh through the lens of someone else and then on a third level uh it's also the author of the book is editing it for us so we get like three different levels of truth what is real what is not real and that's what i love about this poor things trailer all of the exaggerated colors the exaggerated production design it's clear that this is all taking place inside of a story it's giving me some major guillermo del toro vibes some major uh jean-pierre jeanette vibes like amelie city of lost children i am absolutely fucking with it i love how this is coming out i'm not sure about oscars i mean i definitely have higher hopes for costumes production design uh and maybe a little bit for stone how did you feel about this this is your first peek at the film it is i'm more receptive to this trailer than i was to the initial like images that we saw most of the images looked a little bit dull to me lacking of any flavor or color but now seeing it in a more like visual format i can i can see where the angle is coming from i think it meshes very much well with what we got in the teaser today and i this is a weird point but i really like the voices all the actors are doing like even though you only get to hear them say like one thing it was like a very distinctive and different voice from like what you're used to hearing them all say it makes me think mark ruffalo might actually be the uh the supporting push of this movie i'm gonna say it's probably gonna be willem dafoe 
or Mark Ruffalo, because Willem Dafoe's role, he plays the scientist. I thought he would just be there and then disappear. He is there for the whole book, uh, so I assume he's going to be there for the whole movie. And he's got some crazy makeup work on him, which I think is awesome and so exciting. Mark Ruffalo's character, reading the book, I was like, ah, he's in it for like two chapters. But it seems like those two chapters make up like the bulk of the movie. Because in the book, not to spoil anything, but basically we only see Mark Ruffalo's character, Duncan Wedderburn, we only see him through letters which are sent by him and by Bella. But in the movie, it looks like there's a huge chunk of the film which is just Bella and Duncan doing their thing, traveling the world. It does look like Mark Ruffalo is doing the most with his voice, too. I love in Yorgos Lanthimos movies that he allows actors to just go absolutely nuts. He doesn't give them any directions. He just says, do whatever the hell you want, and that's what the movie is. And you can tell with Mark Ruffalo's voice here, he's doing whatever the hell he wants. I am a bit worried with Emma Stone. I think that she might take too big of a swing for some people. I think for some people, she's going to be the, the best performance of the year. And I think for others, they are going to hate this performance. They are going to hate this movie. They're going to hate everything about it. This looks like the entire movie is the biggest swing of the year. And that might not land with some people. That just makes it even more anticipated for me just to see a big swing. It could be a miss, but it also could be a home run. I'm really excited to see whenever we get a full trailer. I don't know if it will come soon. It may be a few months away, but who really knows? But I'm really excited. I liked what we saw here, and I'm really excited to dive into this next trailer we have as well. So am I. I have not watched this next trailer, so uh, let's let's get into that Oppenheimer trailer, and we'll get started for today. I'm not sure how to feel, so I think I'm going to kind of discover my feelings on this movie as we chat about it. So Dylan, what were your initial first reactions to this trailer? So I won't lie, if you are new here or if you've been here for a while, you know that Oppenheimer is one of my most anticipated movies of the year. Christopher Nolan, war movie, and a lot of actors that I beloved. And I mean, this trailer just sucked me in even more. I really like the score that's presented by Ludwig Gordonson. It's very gripping. He's one of my favorite composers, and I'm just glad to see him getting more work. Killian Murphy, I think, looks great in the leading role. I would say one nitpick he would be with the trailer is both of, I guess, the comedy moments don't really work for me, but everything else I think really delivers on what I would want from this film. Christopher Nolan was actually the reason I first got into movies when I was like 11 years old. I saw Inception. I was like, oh my God, I am not as hot on Christopher Nolan now as I, I once was. I still love his movies. I used to think he was like the be all end all of cinema. And I, I definitely don't think that anymore. I think he makes some great films. I think he makes a few less than great films, which I don't think I would have admitted like 10 years ago. But at this point, I'm surprised that I'm not like through the roof excited for a new Christopher Nolan movie. I'm kind of just like, yeah, it looks good. I will go see this day one. And, uh, but yeah, this trailer doesn't make me go like, oh my God, this is best of the year material. It just looks like a good drama. I am a little bit worried about some things. I'm not sure if I love how this is presenting the nuclear bomb as a necessity. Maybe the whole point of the movie is that through the first like hour and a half of it, everyone's like, we have to do this. We have to do this. And then they do it and they're like, but did we have to do that? That seems like it was not a good thing in the end. I, I am a little bit worried that this will either be hit by like first man type stuff where it's not patriotic enough so people like turn on it or it is overly patriotic and paints the creation of the atom bomb 
as a necessity to defeat the Nazis, which it was not. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm worried. I think that there is a tightrope to walk here. I see it as Oppenheimer and Murphy's portrayal of him kind of looks like the whole time he's like, should we do this? This doesn't seem like it's going to go over well. And then we see in those black and white scenes, which I would assume would be after the bomb, they're very much like, no, this wasn't the right thing to do. But also that's completely speculation because no one has seen this movie. But what we are going to do here today is we're going to go over what this film's Oscar prospects could be because some people could be predicting this for across the board nominations. Others could be predicting a major flop. So I think we just start off at the top. Best picture, best director. Matt, where do you stand right now? I don't really think these are going to make it in by the end of the year. Christopher Nolan, even when he's gotten picture in the past with Inception and Dunkirk, uh, he missed director for Inception. Honestly, I think that this is just not going to be a top five contender by the end of the year. Even if it makes picture, it's going to be a bottom half contender. So I'm going to say I don't think that this gets in for director. Uh, although I think picture is a possibility, I, I am not saying director. At the moment, I do have this as a top five contender in best picture. I think that this is Universal's main push. It's going to have a strong backing. I think it's going to do well at the box office. It's going to have a lot behind it on top of, I would assume, pretty high critical and audience reception. Director, I can definitely see him being that surprise miss, like akin to uh, Denis Villeneuve back in 2021, just the big quote, quote, blockbuster. The director doesn't really get in. It's all going to depend on two things, box office and critical support. Does this get the critical backing that Dunkirk did, that Inception did? I'm not sure if that, if it's going to get that type of backing to get into Best Picture. But that said, this does have something that Dunkirk didn't have, that Inception didn't have, that Interstellar didn't have. It is a biopic. And at the center of a biopic, there's always a performance, a hopefully very good performance, but the Oscars love those biopic performances. And we've got Killian Murphy playing Robert J. Oppenheimer right here. He's going to be in apparently every single scene of the movie, which makes me feel like he could have enough of a presence. Even if the film doesn't make it into picture, he could have enough of a presence to make it in here. I feel like he's pretty safe to be in the conversation. And if you're in the conversation as a biopic performance, you're kind of already in there for a nomination. So right now, I feel pretty good for him getting nominated, but not in the winning conversation. The fumble that I would actually expect is in the screenplay category, which it's never been Christopher Nolan's strong suit, is his scripts. Christopher Nolan's concepts are always excellent. The way that he structures stories is fantastic. The way that he comes up with how things connect throughout, how he uses time. But the weak part is his characters and his dialogue. So that's why I'm a little bit hesitant on Killian Murphy, even if he's in every single scene. And with the supporting cast, it also makes me worried. We have such a huge cast here. Everyone in Hollywood is in this movie. But does that mean that anyone has a substantial enough role to break through? Maybe Emily Blunt. She's the only one that seems like she has enough of a presence. Matt Damon, I don't think would get in, even if he is in the entire movie. I would say Matt Damon's performance in this movie will help him over an air more. Like, hey, he has two great performances let's nominate him for his better performance blunt is a possibility we've talked about how not deep supporting actresses where it's very top heavy so maybe she can come in but also i'm not really seeing that at the moment but over in the writing department i think what could help nolan here is the fact that this is based on a book so it's not him having to create everything from scratch he can pull stuff from pre-existing media that can maybe help him with making the characters more relatable or 
making sure the characters just don't exposition dump whenever they come in. But what I am feeling strong about here is the cinematography. Hoyt Van Hoytema's work looks magnificent on this film. As always, he is one of the best working cinematographers, has proven to be so over and over and over again. He's one of my favorite current working cinematographers. I would have loved to see him get in last year for a note, so maybe, you know, some people will also feel like that, so that will carry over to Goodwill this year with the voting branch to get him in here for Oppenheimer. I think regardless of how you feel this movie will perform above the line, these technical nominations seem very good unless this movie is like complete critically panned but i feel like cinematography and some of these other technical nominations are pretty safe also looking great is the editing and sound here i don't know if you can say that the sound looks great when it's sound we can't see the sound but it seems like there's a lot of potential for a lot of great sound work hopefully as long as christopher nolan doesn't be a big dummy head and make it impossible to hear people speak i i, I understand those arguments i also am a defender of his sound mixing because I think it very much adds to the the weight and the emotions of whatever scene that you're in. It very much engrosses you, but I feel like since this is not an action-heavy movie, some of those sound issues shouldn't occur, maybe other than whenever the bomb is going off. But still, the bomb going off is probably a very small portion of this entire runtime. I think both of these categories are where Oppenheimer could see its wins on Oscar night, including our next category. About score, it sounds luscious, it sounds gorgeous, from what we're getting in this trailer. Ludwig Göransson, back at it again. Like I said earlier, I'm a huge fan of him. I think this sounds great so far. I think his best work actually comes in a Nolan movie back with Tenet, which we know how that fared in award season. I can listen to the Tenet score, how like people talk about how they listen to the Babylon score. You just put it on, you can listen to it all in full. It's great, and I think it very much elevates the movie in it as well. I know your issues with its mixing, but I think the score is still very good. And I could see an angle yeah. for if this movie is a top contender for this being a chance to win in the score. I mean, score is one of those hard categories to predict because you only get to hear what's in the trailer and that's only one song. Sometimes it is the most popular song, but it's not always the case, specifically going back to like Dune last year. The vibe that I get here is just like, it sounds very, very good, but maybe we've heard stuff like this before. Mm -hmm. But let's move on to the production and costume design. This is a period piece that is always a hit with the Academy. Does this look strong in these categories? I would say production, yes. Costumes, no. But if this is a major player, it could, like, Irishman its way into costumes because men in suits. But at the moment, I'm not going to predict that. This looks like First Man to me, and First Man did get production design. But that said, I think that there's so many other movies this year that have very very strong production design that this just might get left on the cutting room floor for that but it does give me the same kind of vibes that first man did that moves me to the last category we're going to talk about here visual effects and i had had this like top five all year round and i'm starting to think it's gonna miss the reason being i just keep thinking is there gonna be enough visual effects like how many bombs are we gonna see go off is that going to be enough? Like, just seeing fire, is that going to be enough? It seems like just doing an explosion is very simple. Also, the fact that Christopher Nolan does so much practical rather than using CGI, I'm starting to think it doesn't get VFX. I just think you, you have to look at two things here. You look at, like, Top Gun last year. You look at 1917. You look at other Nolan movies that still eventually get in. I know Dunkirk did not get in, but other Nolan movies and other very low visual effects movies and then you also look at what is really in competition this year because i mean we have dune we have a marvel movie 
we have Indiana Jones, and then you kind of struggle to see stuff that looks very well. Like, I mean, there's Little Mermaid, there's Napoleon, there's Dungeons and Dragons, and that's about it. So Oppenheimer at least seems like it's going to be a more well-received movie than those other three, so that could be just a goodwill. Here's an extra nomination, get in here. This brings me into, obviously, I'm a little bit lower. Not a little bit, I'm a lot a bit lower on this film than you are. What is the worst-case scenario for this film? How could this fail? What do we think could lead to this missing on these big Oscar categories? I think regardless of anything else, if this bombs at the box office, I think that might be the nail in the coffin for this movie. And then there's what we mentioned before of the anti-war or pro-war outrage, depending on which angle it goes for, where I don't think that would really matter for voters, but it would matter for public perception. I keep referencing First Man as a benchmark for this, and I think that the how could this fail scenario for Oppenheimer is exactly the same as what we saw with First Man, and how that movie went from being the number one contender of the year to not getting nominated. This is a, a pattern now with Damien Chazelle with Babylon and First Man being the number one contender, it's totally safe, and then flopping and just vanishing from the Oscars. And the way that went down is it starts off with criticism of the movie's attitude towards America from a lot of right-wing papers, a lot of uh, right-wing people. There's a bit of a boycott on Twitter. People saying, oh, it's not patriotic enough. Oh, it didn't show the American flag, whatever. And then because of that, the movie ends up losing a chunk of its box office, which was always kind of relying on those America, fuck yeah, people coming out to see the movie. So you lose that, then the box office kind of doesn't go anywhere off of the critical acclaim. Ultimately, the movie is just forgotten about within like two weeks, and it stumbles into Oscar season with no one thinking about it. That is the scenario that Oppenheimer has to worry about. So, at least looking at Nolan's last two Best Picture nominees, Inception, Dunkirk, they both got eight nominations. So that brings us here to Oppenheimer, where, you know, on paper, it makes sense to go with eight. And I see ten categories where it could show up. You got picture, director, actor, screenplay, sound, editing, cinematography, production design, score, visual effects. And that's probably where I land. I'm not really sure which ones I want to take out. I'm kind of leaning screenplay. I'm so much lower than you. You've got ten I have four. I have sound, editing, cinematography, score. We're going to see how that turns out. If the movie comes out, I, I really hope to be wrong on this. I just have a bit of a negative gut feeling on this film. We are doing some craft predictions, but before we do that, consider dropping a like. It will help out the channel. And stay subscribed because we have new predictions each and every week for different categories. But kicking us off today, we have best original song. And you know... This is arguably the hardest category to do this far out, but, 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 with all that being said, I do kind of feel good about my number one. Do I know which Little Mermaid song it's going to be? Probably not, but I do feel like this is probably our frontrunner. Lin-Manuel Miranda still does not have his Oscar, and he's had two, three chances now, and he keeps coming up short. This year, I'm not really seeing that unbeatable song in his way at this moment. Who knows? Sitting here in May? He looks pretty destined to win this award. Probably gonna be Scuttlebutt would be the original song that wins yeah. here. There's two other ones, and who knows if they could submit more than one, maybe two or three getting, because like in the early 2010s and like in the 2000s, you would see these Disney movies get two, three song nominations. I know they put a rule into how many you could submit, but I'm still pretty sure you could, could submit two. Yeah, with Little Mermaid, there's three songs. I think they can submit two. 
I do think Scuttlebutt will be one of them, and I think the other will probably be the new Ariel song. I think they'll leave the Prince Eric song out. My number two may make you a little upset. I don't know if you've you've changed your mind with uh, the music for this movie yet, but I have Wish at number two. I think the song in the trailer sounds very good. I think this movie will get a push regardless of what it is. It's not going to be like Strange World where Disney just doesn't care about it. I think they're going to do everything in their power to make sure this shows up in at least two categories. This song's been floating around. I didn't realize Ariana DeBose had actually performed the song in full at Disney's conference last year, so you can find the main song from Wish floating around on YouTube. I think this will depend on whether it gets radio play and whether kids just won't shut the hell up about this song as they did with We Don't Talk About Bruno. My number three and four, I'm not really sure what order to put these in. I have Wonka and the Color Purple. I would assume they have new songs, but also I don't think there's confirmation of new songs. Maybe there is. Wonka is a full-on musical, and all of the music is brand new. The Color Purple, I think it has been confirmed that there are new songs in the movie. Okay. The question is, are they credit songs, or are they in the movie? I still think a credit song from this movie, if it's a big Best Picture player, can sneak its way into this category. It just can't uh, win. Yeah, exactly. It just can't win. That's why I feel so good about Little Mermaid at this moment. That and Wish really seem like the only angles to win, but who knows? Wonka could have a winning song. And at number five, I do have our beloved Diane Warren getting her secure nomination every year, this time for 80 for Brady, Gonna Be You. And I kind of just want to be able to say 80 for Brady is an Oscar nominee. That, that sounds really fun. After Florence Sun is where I have, I guess, our quote-quote social justice songs Usually they're in the conversation, they just don't always get in. I know that in uh, the COVID year, we had two get a nomination, one even win. But since then, we haven't really seen them show up as often. But Rustin, surely they're here. But usually for the song to get in and for the song to win, the movie needs to be a Best Picture nominee. So they are my number seven and eight. I have Barbie at nine. We have heard those original songs here. I just need to hear the song first. And at number 10, I have just something from Across the Spider-Verse. I don't know if this is confirmed or not, but I've heard rumors and rumblings online Metro Boomin is heading the soundtrack. I know he has a cameo in the movie. I don't really see a world where Metro Boomin becomes an Oscar nominee, but I would love to be shocked. In terms of the Barbie song, I don't know if they're joke songs. They're written by Dua Lipa. If the Oscars don't nominate joke songs, Songs, they also don't nominate pop songs like we saw with Don't Look Up. I think that's a really good solid 10. It's about as good as you could get right now because again we don't know what's out there but what we do know is out there is the scores. So do you want to take us away for the best original score competition right now? I will do and at number one I have Killers of the Flower Moon. Do I feel great about this? No but I feel like Killers is not going to go home empty-handed like Irishman does. I think it's going to win supporting actress and maybe that's its only win but I could see Robbie Robertson finally get a win in this category here for Killers. It just feels right at the moment because I don't believe Dune's repeating. Oppenheimer sounds great, but I don't know if it has enough to win. I mean, there's John Williams for Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny, but is he going to win for an indie movie for his final win? I love indie cinema, meaning Indiana Jones. Yes. <laughs> Other things I have here, my top five are Oppenheimer. We just heard it in the trailer. It sounds pretty good. I know he missed for Tenet, he missed for Black Panther last year, but you know, he, he missed twice in a row. It might be time to get him back in, and this time for a Best Picture nominee in my eyes. Past Lives is here at number three. 
Uh, we'll get to lay eyes on this movie and get to hear the score very soon. John Williams is at number four for Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny. I, he's pretty safe for a nomination. And I do have Dune Part 2 landing in here for score. I know you have a case for why it won't get in, but at the moment, I'm not seeing anything else really worth putting into my top five. So I have Dune here where I could easily see it missing due to like what you were saying in previous episodes. I'll stand by that. I won't repeat my argument. Go find it in another video. You can find it anywhere it's the same score <laughs> outside of my top five i have the killer maybe Reznor and ross can find their way back in at the moment i'm holding out i want to i want to hear what the score is first normally they have a pretty good track record for david fincher movies wonka's at number seven uh, they have new songs probably have a new score at eight is asteroid city display has a history getting in for wes anderson movies but we also know that display has missed like three or four years in a row. May, December, Barbie, they ran out my top 10. There's some other big movies out there, just um, I'm not really sure where to go. It's also worth mentioning The Zone of Interest, which is being scored by Mika Levy. Mika Levy was previously an Oscar nominee for Jackie uh, and was in contention for Under the Skin, the last Jonathan Glazer movie that she did. The Zone of Interest is very much worth, especially if we're both taking it seriously as a Best Picture contender, it is a big deal in score and could be in win contention, I believe. Also worth mentioning Wish and Elemental, both Disney movies. We saw Encanto get in a few years ago for its score and Wish could very much do the same, especially if it has a really good soundtrack that people don't know how to reward because there's so many good songs and they can only pick one. And then of course, Elemental, the Pixar movie, Thomas Newman is doing the score for this one. Maybe this won't be the strongest Pixar movie, but it's still worth taking seriously because it is Pixar and we know their music usually goes pretty damn hard. Zone of Interest is something I probably should have in my top 10 but I mean Kansas so soon so if it opens there and people rave about the score then yeah move it on up. I'll, I'll just hold off for another what is it like two weeks until eyes are laid on this movie. But let's move on to the next category here which is best costume design. I'm going to be taking this one. First off number one we got Barbie. Doesn't matter how unconfident I am in Barbie and other categories. Costume design is unshakable here. This is prime costume design material. After that we got Dune Part 2. We've seen the costumes. It's big. It looks like they're doing more than the first one. I mean on Arrakis it looks mostly the same, but we're not just seeing Arrakis. We are going to other planets, which names I forget, cannot remember. Emperor Planet, Florence Pugh, looks like costumes, yes. And then number three, the color purple. I could see an angle where this ends up missing, if it might not be the biggest player of the year, but I do really have high hopes for the color purple being a massive, massive player, which is why I've got it so strong here. Number four, I have Killers of the Flower Moon. I think everything we've seen here, the costume design is really strong. I mean, God damn it, the Irishman got in for costume design, and it was just dudes wearing suits. There's clearly more going on here, especially with some of the traditional indigenous clothing that they're using on this film. And at number five, I'm putting Poor Things back in, baby. Poor Things costume design looks stunning, as does the production design, as does the cinematography. I think if nothing else, this film will be a visual feast. Even if people really hate this movie, if it's really polarizing like Babylon was, it can still make it into costume design. It can still make it into production design just based on how gorgeous the colors are. You have a very, a very fun and very interesting top five. I am still going to hold out for poor things a little bit. I know I was originally very high on it. The release date does scare me. I want to see some more faith put behind searchlights and be like, hey, this is going to be our push this season. But I think if 
it is its push, costumes, they're, they're very secure. Production design, it's very secure. You know what I think it, it makes absolutely certain for Searchlight? Chevalier ain't doing shit. <laughs> yes. I do agree. Barbie is the front runner. I don't really see an angle for this movie not to win at the moment. But, you know, those are always our famous last words here in May. I'm starting to think Barbie is a one nomination, one win movie. Interesting. Wow. I could see an angle for maybe one other category. Yeah. It's not one nomination, one win. I think it's two nominations, one win. I I'll fight back on that one nomination in our next category, but I'll save it for then. After my top five, I also have the zone of interest at number six. Maybe it won't have enough costumes or whatever for it. I think production design looks good for that one, but maybe not costumes. Asteroid City, we know Wes Anderson's costumes are going to go off. We've seen them in the trailer. They look great. Uh, Wonka also belongs here as well as The Little Mermaid and Napoleon rounding out my 10. Asteroid City, like you keep mentioning, we should put it in our 10, but is it really going to be nominated? No. Wonka has a shot. Little Mermaid, maybe. And Napoleon, I would love to see it, but there's one in your honorable mentions I think could maybe be a sleeper player, and that's Firebrand. I don't know how much that could be a solo nominee as we saw last year of Corsage. Like, hey, really good, but still couldn't get its way in. And I think that Firebrand could maybe follow a similar path as Corsage, where it's an actress and a costumes player and it ends up falling short in both. We'll see how some of these things play in the reviews very, very soon. I think there's an angle for Priscilla. I just... I will harp on this every episode until it comes out. The fact that we had Elvis last year, I don't really see the angle for Priscilla to do it the year after, especially with how much Elvis dropped at the last moment. And I don't feel yeah. like they're going to rush. I'd be like, okay, let's nominate the same stuff again, just, you know, from a slightly different angle. It's sort of a Bohemian Rhapsody Rocket Man play, right? Yeah. Where Rocket Man underperforms because Bohemian Rhapsody just did so well. Production design. At number one and number two. I'm not sure which order to put these, but I have Dune Part 2 because it looks like it's elevating from the initial Dune. It's adding bigger pieces, bigger sets. Everything that we're going to see on Austin Butler's planet looks grand. It looks big. We're going to get more visuals on Arrakis. So that's my number one. This is in a category where I think Dune can hold on to its win from the first one. And I do think Barbie will get in here for production design. I feel like this will be something people rave about because it's bringing your toy sets from when you're a child to life. Barbie is just a little bit outside of my top five, but I can totally see it get in. I do have it as one nomination, one win, but if it gets into one other category other than costume design, it would be production design. Warner Brothers, they're dominating these categories because at number three, <laughs> Color Purple. Warner Brothers has one, two, and three. I don't feel like Color Purple has an angle to win, but I feel like it's, it's pretty safe in here for production design. I feel like it could have a lot of cool sets adapting stuff from the stage and they could go really big with it or they could go very minimal. And I feel like both angles that you go with could spark a very good like narrative for a nomination here at number four i have indiana jones in the dial of destiny i feel like this could present a lot of interesting sets pieces they're going to go throughout time so you're going to get to get to see some old sets to spark a little bit like hey you're recreating something that we know from the past and i know that the last one did not get in for production design but the last one was a pretty critically pan movie and also was not very loved by its target audience but i don't see that being the same case here for dial of destiny and the aforementioned oppenheimer rounds out my top five this and killers of the flower moon i think one of them will miss i'm not sure which one will right now i have killers out 
just because killers can't get everything, but also Oppenheimer can't get everything. So I feel like one of these, if not both of these, ends up missing. I think I only have two of five of the same as you right now. I only have Dune in color purple. For Indiana Jones, I think that they might just feel they've seen this type of production design done so many times, especially because it's become basically like every single adventure movie just does Indiana Jones now. Like if you're going to give Indiana Jones production design when Uncharted copied it last year like it feels like at this point it's copying itself oppenheimer first man got in it looks like it's playing that sort of same angle with the laboratories and the testing sites but at the same time i definitely feel a little bit less strong about oppenheimer than you do so i have oppenheimer missing in place of the three movies that are not in your top five i do have killers i have poor things and i have zone of interest which i think you're about to talk about Yep, those are my next three in line. Killers and Oppenheimer, I feel like are kind of going in for the same sort of angle of setting in a desert. Like I said before, they're both very big, grand on scale, and if they're kind of the same, they're probably not putting both in. I'm just not sure which one to focus on at the moment. Poor things, I mean, that teaser makes me feel a little bit better, just like we talked about over in costumes. The release date still scares me a little bit. Zone of interest makes sense but I need to make sure it's a for real picture player. And if it is a for real picture player, this comes along with it. But if it's not really a top five player, it's more of just like, hey, this is our international nominee that gets screenplay and director, then this probably wouldn't come along. Other yeah. little ones I want to mention real quick are Napoleon, Wonka, and Asteroid City. There's an angle, but I don't see that angle happening. The argument for Zone of Interest here is actually really compelling in my mind, which is that apparently they went to the town outside of Auschwitz, and they redesigned the town to look apparently exactly historically accurate to the way that it did. And apparently there were locals that were having like very, very strong flashbacks because it just felt as though the entire town had been transported back. Honestly, I think that there's an argument, even if the film underperforms, if it does not make it into the places that we think it could make it into. Production design, I think, is one of the strongest because of the work that they did to recapture a very historically accurate depiction of Auschwitz and the town around it. Asteroid City, though, I, I think that you should give a little bit more credit than it's getting currently. French Dispatch almost made it into production design like it was so so close i was definitely predicting it on that morning it was number six if asteroid city gets one nomination it's here i'm not gonna dump on dune's oscar chances in best makeup and hair because i think dune is going to win yes. this category there you go I think that the transformation that they've done on all of the Harkonnens in this, I think it's finally going to pay off for them. It got them a nomination on the first film. We are going to see so much more of the Harkonnens on this film. We got Austin Butler looking like a certified lunatic. Dune Part 2 is going to win Best Hair and Makeup. I will say that right now. I will probably back down on it later after more information is presented. But right now, Dune is looking incredible incredibly strong in best makeup and hair. I'm glad that the trailer, you know, backed me up here because I remember I said this our first go around of like, hey, Dune Part 2, this is the category where it can win, but the first one didn't because we are going to see more Harkonnen. And on top of the Harkonnen, I mean, mm -hmm. Lady Jessica has tattoos all over herself. That's makeup. Paul is in the desert, so there's going to be dust, dirt everywhere. They're going to be dirty. More makeup. I just think that Dune is not going to go home with just one win after getting six last time so i feel like it has to pick up some small wins here and there and i think 
hair and makeup is definitely a category where it can win something that it didn't win last time. After Dune Part 2, I do have Maestro following it up at number 2 in hair and makeup. I think Bradley Cooper is just going to be done up enough that it's going to happen. As much as I have no confidence in the movie, I think it will get into best makeup and hair the way that House of Gucci did. The makeup and hair branch don't give a shit about whether your movie's good or not. They just care if the makeup is good. And Bingo. it sure does look good in Maestro from the photos we've seen so far. At number three, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, baby. This one is stunning makeup. It should stay in conversation for the entire year. We know it'll definitely be shortlisted, and if it's shortlisted, it is almost certain to be nominated. The work that they did with the High Evolutionary's face, all of the people on Counter-Earth, all of the animal creatures, that's makeup. That's not CGI. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 got in based on Gamora and Nebula, and now they've added in all of the Counter-Earthians, they've added in the High Evolutionary. This just feels, I'm not gonna say locked, but it, it feels whatever I, I, that is. Yeah, I think it's definitely like 95% in there. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 did not make the cut, but I feel so strongly about Volume 3, especially if Black Panther Wakanda Forever got nominated last year. We know this branch is receptive to Marvel stuff, and this is, I think, the best makeup work that has ever been done in a Marvel movie. So, and poor things, in that trailer, there are two major takeaways I had. It was production design looks stunning, and the makeup work is nuts. Willem Dafoe's face is a canvas for any makeup designer. The few shots that we got of him, uh, the shots that we got of Mark Ruffalo, hey, even, even Emma Stone, her performance and her makeup is making her look like a child in this movie, and that is the vibe that you need off of that, so I'm feeling pretty strong there. So my top four I feel really good about. Number five is where I start to feel pretty shaky. I've got the zone of interest right now. I don't really have an argument for or against it. I'm just feeling like it might have something in it that feels strong to be a contender, or maybe not. I don't know. I'm feeling very shaky on number five. I, I'm with this category as well. After Guardians, I feel very strong with your top three. I think even with the poor release date for poor things, makeup probably in there. And just, I'm with you here. I don't really know what to put at five. Parts of me wants to put Barbie, but then I feel like I'm over-nominating Barbie. Killers is here as a default. Like, hey, it's just going to get a lot of nominations. But also, the Academy's showing it's not really doing that anymore, where it's throwing these massive movies, massive totals, and color purple is a contender some of the other things that i'd give a shout out to i mean barbie will have really good hair but i don't see I, th this branch doesn't give a shit about hair and we've seen that over and over and over if you're not doing stuff with the makeup with the face it doesn't matter and barbie i think it's just it's glamour makeup there it doesn't give them something that's like creatively fulfilling i guess i think the other one that i feel has maybe the best chance of making it into the top five is napoleon because we know that they're going to do a lot with Joaquin Phoenix's face. But at the same time, uh, Napoleon doesn't feel like a contender, so I don't know about that. Otherwise, The Little Mermaid is worth mentioning here. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is definitely worth mentioning. Today, we are going to be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. But before we dive into this, this is a spoiler discussion. If you've already seen Guardians, welcome. 
stay. If you haven't seen it, go on and watch this because, you know, a little spoiler here. I think that we both very much enjoyed this movie, right? I think we both are maybe a little bit more mixed than most people are on this. I've seen people say this is maybe the best movie that uh, Marvel has put out since the last two Avengers movies. I've seen some people even go so far as to say it is the best movie Marvel has ever made. I know I've been a little bit less harsh on Marvel recently than you are. Yeah. So for me personally, the MCU has been on a major, major decline ever since Infinity War. And yeah, I, I hear the complaints. I, I said Infinity War, not Endgame. I enjoyed Far From Home. <laughs> I thought Endgame was a massive swing and it was a massive miss for me. Captain Marvel, Black Widow, Eternals, Love and Thunder, Multiverse of Madness, Quantumania, the list goes on and on and on. Massive stinkers to me. But we did have some diamonds in the rough. I mean, No Way Home was a lot of fun. Shang-Chi was a nice switch up of vibe. And even though I had a lot of issues with the movie itself, Wakanda Forever is a very well-made movie. That all leads us to Volume 3, Gardens of the Galaxy, and... I adored Vimes 1 and 2. I thought James Gunn adds a lot of much-needed originality and create a flair behind the director's chair as well as the script. I think this amazing ensemble cast continues to prove why they are the best group in all of the MCU. I think this is the best movie since Infinity Wars. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think Endgame really made people collectively gaslight themselves into thinking that the MCU was always good or was always consistent. It has never been consistent. The MCU has always been hit or miss. There's always been good movies and there's always been bad movies. That has just been a fact. You look through phase one, phase two, less phase three. Phase three was pretty consistent, but phase one and phase two had a lot of stinkers. Actually, Phase 3 had some too. Ant-Man and the Wasp. With the MCU, it's always been some good or a lot more mediocre. It's just a lot of stuff where you walk out of it and you forget about it. We saw how everything led up to Endgame and Infinity War, and we want that right away. When that's not what the MCU really was before, and we've all just been tricked into thinking it was. Really, honestly, that's, that's how I feel about it. So Guardians Volume 3 is a hit after a string of misses, uh, but not all misses. I mean, Black Panther Wakanda Forever just came out in November, and that one got great reviews. It was overall very well liked. I don't think we can say it's been all misses. I mean, people were over the moon about No Way Home as well. Uh, it seems like every single time a, a decent to good Marvel movie comes out now, people clamor over it being like, oh my god, it's the first time we've seen something good since Endgame. I'd say my initial thoughts here are mixed overall on Guardians Volume 3. I liked it, uh, but it is my least favorite in the series. If the first Guardians was a 10 out of 10 for me, the second Guardians was a light 9 out of 10, this is a light 8 out of 10. Uh, I have a lot of problems with the pacing in the script of this movie, the way it rushes from scene to scene, but what this movie does well the rocket scenes, it does so incredibly well that it boosts this movie, in my opinion. We've had the chance to fall in love with the Guardians of the Galaxy over five films now, and a holiday special, which I guess I have to say, I never saw, so I was a little confused to where uh, Cosmo came from, but hey, Cosmo, you are a good dog, because Malia Blackalova added some much-needed comic relief. She's always great to see pop up and stuff ever since I first was introduced to her in Borat 2. But back to our main cast. They all get times to shine. They all have great moments and satisfying conclusions for all of them. Well, most of them. You mentioned the Christmas special. The Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special is the worst thing that Marvel has ever put out. I know people are like, it's just meant to be like cute and fun. And I'm like, yes, it is. 
but also James Gunn bragged about writing that movie in 45 minutes, and you can tell that he wrote that movie in 45 minutes. It feels like a first draft because it is a first draft. Never have I seen someone brag so much about making his work be so low effort. And that's the problem with the Disney Plus stuff, though. They say that you don't need to watch it, but they provide a lot of context. Like, you'd know a little bit more. So they say you don't need to watch it, but, like, it provides a lot of really valuable context, and you feel like you're missing out if you don't. That said, the cast, as you mentioned, ties these movies together. You can point out any person in these movies and say that they're the standout. I really gotta say, the comic relief here of Dave Bautista and Pom Clementiev, they are so fun to watch together. They have such great chemistry. They really had a lot of moments to shine here. I would say Bradley Cooper, but I think a lot of the heavy lifting in that performance was not the voice work, but the mocap and the realization of the character through the VFX. I've always thought Dave Bautista's Drax was the standout in these movies, and that's no different here, and I think that Palm adds some really, really great uh, performance as Mantis, because I feel like she was very underused in Volume 2 and both Avengers movies. Like, she was just there, but never really given much to do, but here, carries the movie. Everyone's favorite actor, Chris Pratt, continues to prove why, you know, the haters may be wrong. Like, maybe as a person, he's not that good, but as an actor, he's really, really talented. He knows how to hit the comedic moments, as well as the dramatic moments, especially in this movie, but... The heart of this film falls on Rocket, as you mentioned. I think his parts of the movie and the stuff specifically with the High Evolutionary or what makes Volume 3 stand out to be some of the best moments in the Guardians or even the MCU movies as a whole. The Rocket storyline is the heart of this movie. As he says in this film, this has been your story all along. It really has. Rocket is the one that everyone's fallen in love with the most in these films for good reason. He is such a good character and he has such a tragic backstory and we finally get to see where he came from. Using animals to create emotional connection is basically like a cheat code in films because we always associate animals with pure kindness, innocence, especially baby animals. You already feel emotions in the first second of this movie as we hear creep playing and we zoom in on a baby raccoon looking terrified that immediately made me feel like upset and the movie just keeps hitting you with that throughout like it keeps going in on these animals being these sort of tragic characters that they don't know what's going on and they're being pulled in all these different directions forcibly by these characters that just want to use them. So yeah, these scenes are the highlight of the movie. Uh, all of this stuff with Rocket and the animals, it actually made me bump the film up a star rating from how I felt overall with it. On top of being just so engaging and so like captivating, like you can't take your eyes off it, that scene with Lila, Teeps, Floor, Rocket, while they're all locked up learning, bonding, becoming friends, really adds to who Rocket is as a character when you meet him in volume one and you get to see his progression over time. He's already had a group of close friends and he lost them, kind of due to his own fault, even if it was for a good reason. So when he meets the Guardians originally, he's very standoffish, and he doesn't want them because he doesn't want to hurt more people, but he grows to love them, and I think the full circle moment of the Guardians essentially putting their life on the line to save him was a very nice, touching thing to bring this whole trilogy of films together. The High Evolutionary, I think, adds so much to this movie. It's a very manic and like bold, in-your-face performance. Normally, 
with these yeah. villains we see them like gradually grow but he's always at a 10 and i think it works like i think it really delivers that much needed foil to what is usually goofy movies with the guardians having that sense of danger also adding a sense of you know despair to start the movie at least is that cold opening with radiohead's creep the acoustic version i think it just sets the moon so well going forth like you know what you're getting with this movie i was a big fan of the scenes involving craglin and cosmo even though i hadn't seen the holiday special i thought their dynamic was very fun and it added much needed comic relief because normally their scenes would come somewhere around those baby rocket scenes too so like you just get something very dark and then now you can get something a little bit funny that final fight scene not the one with the high evolutionary but the one that's in his ship where it's like basically a pseudo one take but that just shows the right way that you do slow-mo you can really tell when marvel lets its directors do what they want james gunn really did what he wanted on these fight scenes but i gotta say my my standout was the ending sequence with florence and the machine the dog days are over playing Oh my god, it made me so happy slash sad both at the same time. It's sort of this celebration of what we had with these characters, knowing that we may never have that again. Well, to continue about things that we love with this movie, I think all the Guardians movies have had great technical aspects. And I think this movie elevates for some of the series highs because this film does not look like it's in front of a green screen and i think that the hair and makeup work here is is so good it's so detailed my one nitpick would be the gold on the warlocks looks kind of bad but i think that's more played for comedic stuff as well but overall everyone else looks great the people on counter earth look amazing the guardians themselves look better than they ever have before and the soundtracks as always are killer whether it's playing creep at the beginning or florence of the machine at the end or any of the other song cues throughout they always kind of find like just the perfect song to play at the right moment the vfx work especially on rocket and his friends in the facility it really adds to the emotional weight. The difference between the VFX in this movie and so many other Marvel movies in the past few years, like Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, Thor Love and Thunder, is that they are actually interacting with the characters. That's what sets this apart from Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, where it just looks like they were in front of things the entire time and never actually interacting with things. So everything looks more real here because it feels tangible. It feels like they could touch that thing. But the makeup is the standout here. Like you already mentioned, Counter-Earth, the High Evolutionary's face, fantastic work. It is just so, so well done, as well as some of the gore makeup when the High Evolutionary's face gets ripped off. My god, they need to nominate this for Best Makeup at the Oscars. Obviously, neither of us are saying this is a 10 out of 10. I'm a high 8, you're a low 8. So my biggest issue with this movie is it somehow feels too long while also feeling too short. The Gamora stuff was very much just kind of roped in. It's like, oh, we have to give her something. So she just goes back. I think that Gunn kind of got inherited with a dead storyline to begin with. I feel like she shouldn't have come back, but... You know, you're you're kind of handed the character and you just have to figure out something. A lot of it felt like it rushed through stuff while also having so much more they could have dived into. As we mentioned before, I think all the Rocket stuff is perfectly paced. Just all of the stuff involving saving Rocket felt very much breezed through while you could have gone a little bit deeper into everything. I have a theory as to why it feels both too long and too short. And I think it's because they rush from scene to scene and they take too much time in the individual scenes. So like, for example, counter Earth, they're there, and then within five minutes, suddenly the Earth is blowing up. The plot moves too fast. There's not enough buffer room between things, and yet the movie still feels very long because in the individual scenes, 
James Gunn wants to use the scenes to create funny character moments and dialogue. The entire Oglecorp scene, they're just, they spend like five minutes there just quipping back and forth at each other, and it feels like a pause in the movie. Despite the fact that the movie has been breakneck paced to get to this point, suddenly they're just sitting there talking back and forth, and nothing's progressing. But then because they just took that time to do nothing, now they have to rush through the next thing. The The room to breathe always happens when they're in the middle of an action sequence and they decide to take a couple minutes to just joke around, rather than being in between the set pieces. I wouldn't want to cut some of the plot here because it is important, but just to get a little bit more at the beginning with Adam Warlock before he just bursts through the wall, as well as just to see a little bit more with the High Evolutionary before... Because at this point, they meet him and suddenly he's like, I'm blowing up the world. Bye-bye. Like I mentioned before, I think the High Evolutionary is great. I love the performance here. It's I love how it's so manic, so bold, so all over the place. And I just wish we got more screen time, but I don't really know where you could fit in more screen time. But for Oscar chances, something else I also like, because I feel like pretty confident in two nominations, visual effects, hair and makeup, and a sound shortlist seems pretty likely. I mean, Marvel usually gets one in the shortlist. I just yeah. don't know if this can break into a actual nomination. I had it on a bunch of other lists as a potential, just in case the film was a total like revelation, got crazy critic reviews. Uh, if it could have landed into PGA, we could have seen a path to the Oscars for this for some other categories, but I just don't see that really happening anymore. I would say it maxes out at two, the visual effects and hair and makeup. And obviously it doesn't really have a shot to win either, but who knows, it could be a a solid number two in both. You already know what time it is. Draft time. We are back for another draft. And this week we are drafting part threes, five threes, three cools, any movie that is the third installment in a franchise. This cannot be like the third Marvel movie, but this could be like Guardians of the Galaxy volume three. I lost last week. Matt, you have the first overall pick. First overall pick is so obvious. We are doing best Requels of all time. These are the GOAT third movies, and I got one right here. Lord of the Rings Return of the King. This is my third time drafting this movie. This one is the number one head honcho big boy threequel of all time. Not only is it one of the greatest movies of all time, but it is one of only two sequels to win best picture at the oscars you saved me because i probably wouldn't have taken this because i haven't seen it yet so um at least i don't have to pass upon it and possibly give you a free gimme later in the draft but from everything i've heard this is a great first overall pick we are going to one day do a series where you watch lord of the rings for the first goddamn time and react to it honestly i am sure it will eventually happen i am kind of holding out for this movie to come back in theaters which i know it does very often but I need to wait for the first one to come back in theaters and then watch the second one and then the third one. But for my first overall pick here, this would be the movie I would take at number one overall because I haven't seen Return of the King and that would be Return of the Jedi. This is technically a part three in its little installment. Yes, it's technically episode six, but it was the original part three. Makes sense. I mean, it is part of the trilogy. I am not a fan of Return of the Jedi. That is completely okay. While this is not my favorite part three here on the list, I feel like it is the most beloved on the list. So there's some I prefer a little bit more. I think this one still is a solid movie. While it's probably the weakest of the original trilogy, I think it's still better than the six movies that have come out after it. See, I would say it's not even the best part three in any of the three series that we've gotten in Star Wars. That's my hot take. Well, maybe I hate you... the prequels, but uh, I think that the last one there is actually 
surprisingly good. Roger Ebert agrees with me. Toy Story 3. I think that is the best of the Toy Story saga so far. What I love about the Toy Story movies is how they are growing with their audience. While they know what their target demographic is, Toy Story 1 was made primarily for kids at that time. Toy Story 2 grows in that story for when those kids are a little bit older and now toy story 3 hits those kids who are now growing up to become an adult because i was one of those target demographic kids this proves why animation should be considered for bigger oscar awards animation does not get the love that it deserves above the line but matt you have the next two picks here what are you taking my next pick that i gotta take is harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban this one is, I would say, the best film in the Harry Potter series. Alfonso Cuaron came in. He took what Chris Columbus had done as a purely kids movie, a kids adventure, and he turned it into something a little bit darker, uh, a little bit more interesting. Honestly, he revitalized the entire story, and I'd say he revitalized the entire young adult genre. Kids were willing to see something a little bit darker. You didn't need to give them something completely light and frivolous. You could give them something a little bit challenging. While Prisoner of Azkaban, I think, is the weakest book in the series, it is by far the best movie. It is a reinvention of everything that came before. The next one I'm going to pick is Skyfall. This is the oh third gosh. Daniel Craig Bond movie, so it does count. It might be like the 20th Bond movie overall. Skyfall is just uh, an incredible film. It's a great action movie with a great villain. We have a lot of Daniel Craig's character of Bond growing through this movie, returning home, going back to his roots. We have the best performance in the entire Bond series coming from Judy Dench here, who should have been nominated. Well, I'm very upset because you took two movies I very much wanted to have on my roster. So I did not strategically. So I'm going to have to take a big swing with this next pick to hopefully catch up in the draft. And while this is not an official trilogy, I think there there's a case to be made for the Dollars trilogy because you have a fistful of dollars. You have a I failed strategically. There no. we go. I'm taking the good, the bad, and the ugly. Originally, I was thinking this wouldn't really be eligible because it's a little bit of a reach, but it it still fits. So I I was not looking at it originally, but once my probably number two, number three overall picks went, I was like, okay, now I I have to go for this. And um, I I think this is a very great movie. I don't think many people can disagree about that. And I'm just very glad that I have it here on my roster. To pair with that, though, I'm taking a movie that may not be as beloved as another movie in this series. It's a very well-made movie, and that is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. (laughs) I see you're laughing. (laughs) Okay, cool, cool. I think this is one of the most fun Indiana Jones movies. Well, is it the best made one? Is it better than Raiders? No, but I have more fun watching this movie than I do when I watch Raiders. This was a very fitting and a great conclusion to a trilogy, and if they never continued with the series, it would have been perfectly okay because it ends on such a high and such a positive note, which, I mean, a lot of these movies that we have drafted so far don't really end on such a high and positive note. All right, for my next pick here, I am going to take Before Midnight. This film follows Jesse and Celine who met in 1995 on a train heading to Vienna and then nine years later they reconnected in Paris and Before Midnight takes place nine years after that as they are now married and having marital problems as they vacation together in Greece with their family. It is a great conclusion to this series, to this love affair that we've watched over 18 years? Yeah, 18 years over this uh, this series. So now for this last pick, I'm really, really torn. Uh, I don't know whether to pick something artsy 
or whether to pick something a little bit more populist that, that the people will love. I won't pick Three Colors Red, which is the final film in the Three Colors trilogy. So instead, I am going to go with Thor Ragnarok. It took a character that no one cared about, turned Thor from this overly serious Shakespearean character that no one really liked into this lovable goofball. Taika Waititi came in to this series and brought in this sort of synth pop feeling to it all, giving us this sort of 80s vibe that I think was absolutely spectacular. This has one of the best scripts in any Marvel movie. It has a great villain. It is one of the most fun Marvel movies that has been out there. And I think people might unfairly look back at Thor Ragnarok uh, after seeing Thor Love and Thunder, which was not very good, but did a lot of the same things. Thor Ragnarok is still the real deal, even though Love and Thunder followed it up with uh, not a great film. Some honorable mentions I'm going to give before I take my fifth and final selection. We have The Dark Knight Rises, which I see is right there behind you. We have Kung Fu Panda 3, which I think is a great animated part three, but I already have one of those, so I don't need another one. We have another Marvel part three, Captain America Civil War, but I'm going to go with what I think is the best Marvel Part 3, and that is Avengers Infinity War, which I would say is the best Marvel movie there is. So I think, at least for me, that kind of trumps your Ragnarok pick. But, you know, Ragnarok is still a great Part 3. I think Infinity War adds what we all wanted from a cinematic universe. It is the ultimate culmination of all of these heroes coming together to face off against the ultimate big bad. I'm going to be real. I think you've won this draft already. I didn't take Infinity War because I don't really like Infinity War. So on my team, I've got The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Skyfall, Before Midnight, and Thor Ragnarok. And on Team Dill, we have Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, Toy Story 3, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and Avengers Infinity war make sure to go over to the youtube community tab we have a poll open there and as always the winner of the poll gets to have the first overall pick next week but matt polite society brand new movie we both checked out this week kick us off this is the directorial debut of pakistani british director nita manzoor who up till now has only made tv uh, and directed for doctor who and a few other tv shows in the uk polite society is her directorial debut and it's a sort of absurd kung fu movie homage about a young aspiring stunt woman who decides to save her sister from a marriage that she believes is nefarious this movie has a few everything ever all at once vibe which is why when I saw this film advertised at Sundance, I was like, ooh, that looks really interesting. It also has a little bit of Edgar Wright in it. Overall, how did we feel about this movie? Because I think we're both a little bit mixed, even though I, I have a lot of positive, I also have some negative. I fall in the same camp. I should say up front, I'm not a huge Edgar Wright fan, but I am a big Everything Ever All At Once fan. So conflicting styles here, some works, some doesn't. My biggest issue with this movie is it's really good and stylized when it starts off but as the movie goes more and more it becomes more absurd in a way that doesn't really click or connect with me like in everything ever all at once but to be positive i really did enjoy this cast it's just when we dive deeper and deeper into the chaos that ensues that stuff ultimately doesn't really work for me i would have to agree but i i don't think it's because it goes chaotic i think it's because it doesn't commit 
to the chaos. I really like the script of this movie. I think that there's a lot of really fun ideas, a lot of really interesting homages to kung fu movies, and just action movies in general. It's doing a lot. I love Edgar Wright, so all those influences here I think were really strong, but that's where I think that this movie also kind of fails a little bit, which is that there's a clash between the real world and the absurd here. In something like Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, that movie works at being absurd because the entire world feels absurd. We're not in real Toronto, we're in some sort of video game version of Toronto. That action works because it's all big. The production design is big, the cinematography is big, the editing is big, and here in Polite Society, there's a clash between a director, a cinematographer, and a production designer who all want this movie to feel grounded in the real world, but the writer of the movie doesn't want this to feel real. I think it's interesting because I believe that Nita Manzur wrote and directed this movie. The clash there really didn't work. I think that if you had production design that went bigger, if you had cinematography that was a little bit more stylized, then maybe that absurdity that you said didn't really click for you, I think it would have worked a lot better than it actually did. There is angle for that absurdity to work, like in everything ever all at once. Just here, it didn't click because to me, everything felt like it was in her head until that first scene with when the uh, mother of the soon-to-be husband takes her to get that uh, makeover, uh, that's when I was like, oh, it's not just in her head. This is real. I, I thought everything before was just in her head. She was making everything up. Nothing was actually not going to plan. She just was didn't want her sister to be married. When that scene occurs, that was like my like switching point. Like, oh, now I'm on like a different tone and a wavelength in this movie, and I never really hopped back on it. Even if I was kind of enjoying what I was watching, it wasn't clicking with me for some reason. Even back to the first big fight scene in the movie between Rhea and her bully in the hallways of the school where they're throwing each other into shit and breaking things, it feels like the design of that scene, the way it's shot, it's going too much for realism when it's clearly absurd. It's goofball kung fu movie, even the way that it like Tarantino style splices the movie into chapters. It's referencing these old kung fu movies, but it's so dedicated to making it feel like it's an Amazon Prime original that it just ends up not feeling like it's doing enough of either. And since Nita Manzur wrote and directed, what I'm feeling here is a writer who is supremely confident in her skills, who knows what she's doing and a director who is very worried that she's gonna go too far overboard and not get a chance to make another movie because she swung too big but you can't swing big with your writing if you're not gonna swing big with your directing you need to commit 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 i think the screenplay is, is very engaging like i was on board for the big swings it was taking just like you were mentioning the way it was done didn't really hook me even though i was like oh this is an interesting premise i want to see how this concludes i think overall like the script works and i think there are some scenes that the direction works like i really like the ultimate final fight that happens on the street and all the stuff happening after she reveals what's happening like that final confrontation that about five or so minutes i think that stuff's directed very well i think these two leads are are really stars I also would say the choreography is quite good, but I just keep coming back to that direction. I think of another British directorial debut from this year. Look at Polite Society beside Rye Lane and think about how much better Polite Society would be if it was directed by someone who has that bombastic, bold style. Someone like Rain Allen Miller, who just absolutely took 
a rom-com and made it into one of the biggest, most kinetic movies that you could possibly imagine. I want to see Nita Manzur because she clearly has vision. She clearly knows what she's doing. I want to see her next movie commit in the direction rather than backing off at the last moment. I'm going to seek out whatever this director and writer do next, so I'm very happy to hear that it's the same person, and I would hope they get another chance to showcase their talents on the big screen. Obviously, Polite Society is a, it's a small directorial debut action movie, which uh, doesn't feel like an Oscar thing, but we are an Oscar channel, so let's talk BAFTAs. Do we think this has any shot at the BAFTAs? I mean, they do a list of 10 British movies more than they do in Best Film Overall, so I feel like it's probably pretty in there for a BAFTA British movie. Anything else probably is a stretch, but sometimes the BAFTAs really cling to one British production. Yeah. I don't think that will be this, but it could be. I don't think it'll get into the list of 10 best British movies. I do think it'll get into the outstanding debut by a British writer or director. And I think that there's a chance that the lead actress who plays Rhea, she could make it in for the uh, BAFTA Rising Star Award. Possibly. I know that that Rising Star Award usually requires you to be in like multiple things at once. Oh, does but it? Hmm. I don't know why it doesn't require it, just the nominees usually reflect that, that they're like, hey, they're in a movie and a TV show, or they're in two movies or something like that. Maybe I'm just like pulling too much, but who knows? The, the year is still young. She has time to appear in something else. Okay. Thank you for tuning in to episode 48 of Fantasy Film Ball. We went over a whole lot today. We had a jam-packed episode. We talked Oppenheimer. We did our craft predictions for the month of May. We reviewed Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, and Polite Society, and did a best threequels of all time draft. You got to make sure to come back next week, though, because we have even more coming for you. We have our predictions for documentary, international feature, and animated feature. Possibly a best film franchise draft. Possibly not. There's still a whole lot up in the air. We have to see how it comes. Matt, what are you most looking forward to in these upcoming episodes? I don't know if BlackBerry's releasing near you, but if it is, we got to talk about that as soon as we can. Uh, because I'm seeing that on Saturday. So that's, I think, my most anticipated thing of the moment right now is Blackberry, seeing it Saturday. Cannot wait. Uh, and Can is coming up. Can will be starting next week. So basically, just follow our YouTube channel. We're going to be dropping a ton of Can stuff through the next couple of weeks. I know. I'm really excited to see uh, you and Arno's uh, Can Parallel Challenge. I'm excited for that to come out. And yes, Can is yeah. happening. We'll have a lot to discuss. I think that we'll do a full can roundup once the festival ends but who knows maybe next week we sprinkle in a little bit like hey this is what we're hearing so far yeah we won't be hearing a ton at that point because i don't even think by the time we record next week killers won't even have premiered so uh, we'll have to wait a little bit for for some more can roundup stuff but i can't wait to start following all of the craziness that happens at can it is my favorite time of the year also we're getting so close to our one year uh, anniversary of how long we've been doing the show like what a month away because we came out i think beginning in of june june so yeah we had like three weeks should we will probably do something very interesting but like matt said subscribe you, you'll see whatever we come up with you sure will but thank you so much for joining us today thank you always for listening to what we have to say listening to our bullshit uh so thank you so much and as always my name is matt and my name is dill and this is fantasy film ball 
Thank you for tuning into this episode of Fantasy Filmball with Matt and Dill. Keep up to date with us on Twitter at FFilmBall. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. We even upload a video format of the podcast to YouTube if you want to see our faces. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show, and come back next week.